world. May I reasonably expect you to be interested in such intangible topics as these? There may be persons who say, no. We are living, say these persons, in the midst of a serious emergency. One economic system, they say, seems to have broken down, and another is not quite ready to be put into its place. Everywhere are to be found unemployment and distress. Almost everywhere there are wars and rumors of wars. In the midst of such distress, who, these persons say, could be so heartless as to spend his efforts upon doubtful speculations regarding life beyond the grave? Time enough to deal with that other world when we have set this world in order. Let us deal bravely, so the argument runs. First with the problems we can see, and then when we have done that, we may possibly find opportunity afterward to deal with the unseen and intangible things. But what was it that brought about the emergencies upon us in the first place? Was it something in the realm of which can be seen? Not at all. The physical resources of the world are amply sufficient for the world's needs. No, the thing that brought so many emergencies upon us was something in the realm of the unseen things. The distress of the world is due clearly to an evil that is within the soul of man. Hence these so-called practical people who would neglect the realm of the soul and of the soul's relation to God in order to deal with the economic problems of the day are the most impractical people that could possibly be imagined. This was the first radio address by John Gresham Macon in 1935. Macon helped to found Westminster Theological Seminary in 1929 after Princeton Seminary took a turn away from basic teaching of the Bible. It was a time much like today when sound teaching from the Bible was going out of favor. When the public's mind was mostly turned not to spiritual matters but to scientific matters, political matters, international matters, Economic matters. And what does Macon break through the radio saying in 1935? I want to talk about God and the unseen. God and souls. I wonder if you have found yourself caught up in so many different matters in the world but giving very little attention to the matter of the soul. Your soul. The souls of your family. Neighbors and co-workers. This is an emphasis which Jesus taught in His ministry. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him, that is God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Today, my hope is for you to make the soul and the destiny of your soul the foremost thought in your mind. And as we hear of Christ, 
find hope and forgiveness and rest for your soul. What consumes your thinking all day, every day? The climate, the economy, retirement plans, the government, elections, war or avoidance of war, or maybe just trying to be safe. What matters more than anything? What matters more than anything is your soul. The unseen spiritual life in you. Have you considered lately that you are not only mind and body, but soul? That's how we dare sing songs like we've just sang, that we are going to sing your praise forevermore. Not just until we die, but forevermore. When Luke comments on what happened on the day of Pentecost, the day the apostles spoke in tongues and began preaching the good news of salvation in Acts chapter 2, Luke concludes that section of Scripture, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Luke has already referred to the gathering crowd there in Luke chapter, in Acts chapter 2, which Megan read for us, already referred to that crowd as men. Already referred to them as men, the term used for people. Peter also referred to that crowd as men. But now Luke calls them souls, as if to give us a weighty reminder of what is being added to the church this day. Oh, I would plead with you to consider the weightiness of the eternality of your soul. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses himself? And Jesus taught it in an example like this from Luke chapter 12, verse 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, that is Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He thought Jesus' ministry was all big special miracles. No, we've got brother argument here. He said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Have you thought lately that your life consisted in the abundance of your possessions? You get life there. You get meaning there. You get status there. You get security there. And Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. The rich man said, I, I will do this. I will tear down all my bonds and I'll build larger ones. And then I will store all my grain and my goods. And listen to Jesus' next line in the parable. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax and eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, Fool! This night your soul is required of you. The things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's not be impractical today. Consider your soul. Luke comments, souls were added. 
What does Peter have to say about the matter of souls? What does Peter have to say that is good and right and helpful for your soul? What was going on at Acts chapter 2, again, where Megan read for us, Jesus had chose the twelve apostles to be formal witnesses for him on the earth. What was unique about these twelve, in particular, when we look back in chapter 1, these twelve were with Jesus from the beginning. They had seen his miracles. They had seen his suffering on the cross. They saw him die. Then they saw him raised from the dead. They were witnesses that he raised from the dead. And with the power of the Spirit, Peter is now preaching in Acts chapter 2. This preaching is their witness of the things that they have seen and heard. And now in this last section of Acts chapter 2, we are seeing how the people there in the crowd that day responded to the message that Jesus is the Christ and that He rose from the dead after dying to pay for sins. So here's a question for you today. For the sake of your soul, and in your soul, how do you respond to the message of Christ? And how do you respond to the biblical teaching of who Jesus is, what He has done, and what it means for your soul? You find yourself scoffing, laughing about these things. Disbelief, indifferent. Maybe belief about facts, but indifferent in your soul. What is your response to the matter in your soul? Maybe you've heard of Jesus. But you're not sure what the Bible really says about Him. Maybe you're a Christian. You've believed in Jesus for some time. But you have let your mind wander to the things of the world for comfort. So many other things beyond trying to feed and protect and put hedges around your soul for the sake of safety but have forgotten Christ raised from the dead. Here is the call today. Hear the witness and the exhortation for your soul to be saved. First, the witness. Look there in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. To this crowd, Luke comments what Peter was doing. And with many other words, he bore witness. Peter was bearing witness, both with what is recorded in Acts 2 and with many other words that Luke did not seem needing to write. This sermon in Acts 2 is a Witness, it means they witnessed Jesus' life and they were giving witness to who Jesus is. You don't have to spiritualize this witness too much. Peter is saying, we saw that man get crucified and then I looked into the open tomb, which John read for us in Matthew 20, I saw it. And then I saw him raised from the dead, the nail piercings in his hands and his side. I saw him raised from the dead. They spent many days with Jesus after his resurrection before he ascended. And so the message of the apostles is over and over. We saw, we heard. So Jesus says, for example, if you go back to his message in chapter 2, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and he makes point to say, and of that we are witnesses. 
They're not just testing about what it means, but that they saw it and that it happened. So this is what they write to the churches. For example, in 1 John, John will go to great lengths to say they had first eyewitness experience, which we have heard, he says, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, which we have touched with our hands. That life that was made manifest to become flesh. And we have seen it. And that which we have seen, and that which we have heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us. Second Peter 1.16, Peter says it this way, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths. We didn't sit around and scheme about this. This wouldn't even be a good plan to scheme anyway. It just leads to their early deaths. We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of our coming Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. This is one reason the apostles are, as Paul says, the foundation of the church in Ephesians 2.21. We must all consider what we are going to do with the witness of Jesus Christ by the apostles. Do you toss it aside? Do you dismiss it? Here's a question for you. How much witness is enough witness for you? And how much would it take to help you begin to set aside disbelief in order to pick up belief that Jesus is alive, that He raised from the dead? You might say, I need to see it for myself. Well, friends, that's no way to judge all of history. We don't judge any history like that. I need to see it for myself or it can't be true. We couldn't even be good Americans. We wouldn't even believe in the Declaration of Independence. We wouldn't even believe that we're a country. We wouldn't even believe that George Washington exists. You might not believe that your own great-grandparents ever existed. You might say, well, the Bible was written by men and changed over time to create authoritarian communities of faith. Well, that's one, well, there's many things to say about this, but that's one reason we use, for example, the ESV Bible that's in the pews in front of you. It's so closely tied, as other translations are, to the exact words of the ancient documents. So much so that as you read it, you might even find it a little clunky to read sometimes. They're trying so hard to find this Greek word to match with this English word from the earliest Greek transcripts so that what the earliest scriptures we have say matches what we are reading in English as closely as possible. And if you don't like that, you can go back to all of those old Greek manuscripts and read them for yourselves and see this word actually does coordinate with this word. That good word makes sense. You didn't even have to study Greek to know this. I went to seminary and studied Greek, I will confess. Actually, I don't want to confess how much I've forgotten of the Greek that I went and studied, but it is a good portion. But you know how you could go online. You can go online to Crossway and find their Bible and click on Greek, and you can click words all day and just have a feast of word testing to see where these old manuscripts, is that really what we have today, or have men just been rewriting this over time to make the myth even more romantic. The most incredible part of the eyewitness accounts accredited through various copies over, over the centuries. They're a historical record that follow thousands of years. And everything in the scriptures continues to be collaborated by countless archaeological and geographical discoveries which include and continue from year to year. Year to year, we were still finding names and places and inscription on potteries and tombs and cities and theaters and homes and more that keep saying all these times, places, people, events, and Scripture are as Scripture says. What does this mean? The news which is for the salvation of your soul that Jesus rose from the dead, that He died for your sins and rose, and rose is not born from story time or, or fables 
or even just spirituality or mysticism. It is reality. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, which John says was not just born, but became flesh. Because John says He was was God and was with God in the beginning. And all things that have come into being have come into being through Him, Jesus Christ, the, the Word. And that Word became flesh. That's Jesus. He became a man. He died on the cross to take the place of our punishment that we deserve for our sin. Then He rose from the grave to conquer death, to totally pay for our sins. And invite us to new eternal life by believing in Him as well. In response to the mountains of evidence of Jesus' life and the biblical truthfulness, the witness of the apostles, some have said it really takes more faith to be an atheist than a Christian. Journalist Lee Strobel said it this way, It was the evidence from science and history that first prompted me to abandon my atheism. Strobel once asked a psychologist friend about the psychology of the eyewitnesses. Some have claimed over the years that the apostles and their witness was maybe a hallucination, like drug-induced, maybe exhaustion-induced, maybe just wishful thinking that Jesus was resurrected. When asked if this was possible, the psychologist responded, hallucinations are such a unique individual event that if 500 people had the exact same hallucination, well, that may be a bigger miracle than the resurrection itself. What do you say about the witness of Jesus Christ? That He was crucified to pay the debt of sin. That He rose from the grave. Maybe if you've never thought about it, for the sake of your own soul and the worth of your soul, consider the truthfulness of the witness of the apostles that Jesus rose from the dead. You can't believe everything you read on the internet, right? So we have quotes floating around from Abraham Lincoln, for example. But maybe you would spend some time today just seeing how could I research. Maybe you go to our bookstall. Maybe you come find me after the service and say, I want to learn some more about the historicity, the reliability of the witness that the apostles said they saw Jesus risen from the dead. got plenty of books for you. Plenty of websites. You can spend your afternoon just going, I just want to see what it says about the witness that they did see him actually risen from the grave. For our soul's sake, there is the witness that Jesus did in fact die for sinners and raised from the grave. And then there is the exhortation for salvation. Acts chapter 2, verse 40. Not only do they give witness to Jesus... They give exhortation. And with many other words, he bore witness and he continued to exhort them. To exhort them. He was calling, exhorting that crowd, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. What does it mean to exhort? What does it mean to exhort? Well, he says an example of it. He uses an example there in verse 40. What is Peter doing? He's exhorting them, saying, save yourselves. That that is an exhortation. Save yourself. Wake up. Consider these things. Be saved. Get up. Let's go. Pay attention. Submit. See. Believe. Think about these things. Consider these things. Give weight to your soul and the message that Jesus is God and a man and raised from the dead. And be saved. 
Be forgiven for your sins. Let your soul pass from death to life, from burdened with sin to freed and forgiven from sin before God. And so we likewise now are today exhorted. Let me exhort you. We sit under the judgment of God for we all, as Paul says, have fallen short of the glory of God. Each and every one of us were made. Humanity was made from Adam forward to bear the image and the righteousness and the glory of God. That's what you were made for. That's that's why humanity exists. To glorify God and show His likeness on the earth. And image Him and Picture Him to one another and in creation by our dominion over creation, by our care for one another. But look at us. I mean, what a mess. What a mess we've made the world into. We have filled the world not with God's image, but with our own image. With sinfulness and hatred and lying, selfishness, Oh, murder and war. We could go on and on and on what we have done with the world. It only makes sense. It only makes logical sense that God would look to us and say, He's not happy with what we have made of ourselves in the world. He's not happy with our hearts and our minds and our actions. And He is holy. He's so holy. And He will judge sin. All sin. In the end. All sin. Will be judged in the end. It's very foolish. To ignore the call. To be saved. When destruction is sure. It's very foolish. This week there are. And even now rumblings and smoke at the Nevado del Ruiz volcano near Bogota, Colombia. A large portion of the 2,500 families who live beneath it are still this morning refusing to leave, even though they are being warned daily to evacuate. They're refusing to leave even though that volcano, that same volcano erupted and killed 25,000 people in 1985. 25,000 people. Many people believe they were not in danger. The lava was so hot, however, that despite even beyond the explosion itself, the lava was so so hot it melted the entire mountain glaciers, which sent floods of ice and rock and water through valleys and villages. And the saddest part, part of the saddest part is that geologists and other experts have been giving warnings for days leading up to the eruption in 1985. And now that call goes back out today. Same city, same volcano. Will you leave and flee destruction? Will you save yourselves? My friends, likewise, the call now goes out to us. Every one of us. Will you save yourselves? Will you save your soul? 
by clinging to Jesus Christ as Savior. There are many matters which need our attention today. But what more important than the salvation of your soul? Well, Christians, as you go back to work this week, what is more important than the salvation of your neighbor's soul? The forgiveness of your sins, the forgiveness of their sins. Every day that goes by, we are closer to the day when our lives will be over and we are much closer to answering to our Creator. The only hope of salvation, as we sang this morning, is not in me. We can't stand before God and say, yeah, I know I was a wretch, but you know, I, I paid it forward in Starbucks the other day. I know all my sins, but I, 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 did, I did make it to church pretty much every Sunday for like 70 years. No, it's not in me. It's not in me. It's only in Christ who died for our sins. His blood washed away our sin. He raised from the dead to fully pay our debt so that we might die and raise with Him. The generation that rejects Jesus Christ on their way to judgment by God, that's the crooked generation Peter's talking about. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. What was so crooked? They, who Christ had come to die for, killed Him. They rejected Him. And we do the same thing. We, we fall in line with that same crooked ge- generation when, when we hear the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is Christ and He is Lord, and we say, no, thank you. I don't believe I'm fine on my own. Well, with a volcano, what's at stake? Homes and communities and structures. But with the call for salvation through Christ, what is at stake? Your soul. Yourself before God. So this is what Christians are still doing today. Witnessing and exhorting and witnessing and exhorting. Exposing people to the truth of Jesus and exhorting them to be saved through faith. So we just keep gathering and doing that as a church and singing about it. We'll keep talking about it everywhere we go. We're just doing Acts chapter 2 over and over and over. Telling people about Christ, calling them to be saved. That's how we all got here in the first place. I mean, that, that's why there's a church here. That's why Millwood Baptist Church is here. Somewhere along the way, each of our members had someone tell them the gospel that Jesus rose from the dead for them, and we believed it. By God's grace, we believed it. And so we just keep getting together to sing about it and praise God for it. The other thing that unites us is that we're baptized. Look in Acts chapter 2, verse 40 to 41. Acts 2, 40 to 41. Put it together and see where baptism falls in the response. The witness, the exhortation, and then they were baptized. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Excuse me, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. Those who said, Yep, Jesus is Lord, he's Christ, were cut to the heart, they were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, here's, let me just answer this quick question. Why preach about these two little verses on Easter? I mean, why, why talk about baptism on Easter? Well, there's a lot of good reasons to talk about baptism on Easter. One of them is that we believe the whole Bible is true. And way back in the fall of 2022, we made the decision to preach through the book of Acts like we do other books here at church. The whole Bible. Verse by verse, passage by passage. Trying to make sure that we don't ignore parts of the Bible, maybe the parts that are harder, 
maybe the parts that we don't like, and just kind of pick our favorites. We want to read through the whole Bible, little by little, seeing what Acts has to say. And if you've been around, I mean little by little. Each week at our church, we go through the next part of the Bible. This passage was scheduled for this day on Easter, like back in November last year, maybe earlier. But it's very fitting. It's very fitting for this day. Because baptism is the response to the witness and the exhortation to be saved by believing that Jesus has died for your sins and risen from the grave. That's Easter. Peter's been giving witness to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that he died for sin, he rose three days later. Now they are responding as they have been commanded to be baptized. Why should those who want to trust in Jesus and follow him be baptized? I mean, why? Why bother with that? Why do that? Years ago, we had someone at this church, been gone for many years now, they wanted to, they wanted to join our church. They wanted our church to affirm them as Christians and bring them in as full members. I said, that's great. Came to the membership class. And then came time and said, let's plan a time to be baptized as we talked about. And this person said, mm, I'm just not really feeling baptism. Maybe there's another way I can find to show my faith. I could write a poem or sing a song or sign a letter, maybe do a dance, something like that. But the response was, uh, the answer was, you know, we can show our faith all kinds of ways. I could show my faith a lot of ways. But why would we do it this way? Why keep asking people who come to follow Jesus to be submitted to baptism all these years later? Well, very simply, it's the way Jesus commanded us to show repentance from sin and faith in Christ. Jesus commanded this. Baptism is not the way Millwood Baptist Church wants to do everything. You know, we, just, we just love baptizing people. So that's our, that's our thing. No, baptism is submission to Jesus and it's submission to the apostles. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, where he is now, he said to the apostles, the last words in the book of Matthew, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus commanded all those who became his disciple, who trust in him and put their faith in him for salvation, they respond to the witness, they respond to the exhortation, I want to be saved. Jesus commanded they should be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And likewise, when Peter was preaching that they had witnesses, uh, their witness, Jesus rise from the dead, and they had witnessed that Jesus is Lord in Christ, our salvation, the people listening there in Acts 2, they were cut to the heart. Oh, man, we, we missed it. We, we crucified the Messiah. Praise God, He's risen from the dead. We, we repented. It struck them like a, like a lightning bolt. It pierced deep inside them. And so they cried out to Peter, what do we do? What are we supposed to do? Peter's reply was twofold. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's just a few verses earlier from our text today. What does baptism do? What does baptism mean? I mean, here, here's the, the first instance of people actually being baptized in Jesus' name. 
Well, we could do a lot of sessions, a lot of teaching about baptism, but we need to understand a few things about baptism up front as we begin to look at it at other passages in Acts and weeks and months to come. Primarily, baptism brings you under the name. Brings you into the name. Both Jesus and the apostles said to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Be baptized into the name. That means that when you're baptized, you now bear the name of Christ. If you're baptized, you bear the name of Christ. Where God has a people in His plan from beginning to end, He finds ways to mark off His people as His people, as holy. In the Old Testament, He did this through things like circumcision, through the temple, through the law in the Old Testament. Now, baptism brings you under the name. Why baptism? It's kind of a funny thing. Why not do a dance to signify your allegiance to Christ? Uh, well, that would be funny, for one. Baptism is like a picture of the resurrection. When someone's baptized, they go into the water, like Jesus went into the tomb, into the ground. Then they're brought up like Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul talks like this about our spiritual baptism in Romans 6. We, when we came to faith in Christ, Romans 6, 1 through 4, we were buried with him in baptism. We were united with him by spiritual baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised, we too might walk in newness of life. Our unity with him in our faith means that we've died and we've come back to life. Obviously not physically. And if anyone here has been to the grave and been there for a few days and resurrected and found your way back here, I would love to talk to you when the service is over. But the testimony of every member of our church is that we have been spiritually renewed. I was dead in my sins, as we read in Acts 2, but I've been made alive to God through Jesus Christ. Baptism in water signifies the reality of the unseen, the state of the soul. Baptism is a declaration by the church, by the individual, this person has something else going on inside of them. The event is not the baptism itself first per se, but the event of new life in the person, in the soul. A few other things about baptism, it's public, it's formal, it's distinguishing, it's dangerous, it's binding. It's public, it's for all to see, all are welcome, all should know. The call here is not go be baptized somewhere, but come be baptized. So that we, the church, can see that you are baptized and count you with us. So that we can identify you with Jesus. So that we can see that you are with Jesus. It's public. It's also formal. You officially become part of Christ's body. Part of Christ's church. Formally, publicly, officially. This is kind of like getting a passport. You're, you're now formally declared and recognized as bearing the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. You're, you're publicly, for all intents and purposes, a representative now. A formal representative by identifying yourself with Christ. That's what Peter was calling them to do. Come out of this crooked generation and formally stand here in front of everyone and be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. That makes this a distinguishing act. It distinguishes those who follow Christ from the crooked generation. It says there are these with Christ and there are these who remain in the crowd that killed him. These have repented 
These, it seems, have not. And so Luke records at the very end, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. How did they count? What did they count? They counted those who were baptized. They counted those who came forward for baptism. They just kept counting. Peter, we're at 2,973. And they keep coming. About 3,000. That number continues to grow because it is important to distinguish who are those in Christ and who are not. Both for their own sake and for the purity of the name of Christ on the earth. Acts, for example, continues to count. You see in Acts chapter 4, that number becomes 5,000. So we go from 12 to 120 to 3,000 to 5,000 to here we are today. To here the church is today. Continuing to be distinguished from the world having been baptized as a sign of our faith. And it's binding. It's binding to be baptized. When you're baptized, you officially and formally come under the lordship of Christ. And you come under the watchful care of the church. You come under the watchful care of the church. We're seeing and saying, here we hear and see that you're baptized. We're going to watch you and care for you. We're going to keep care of the name of Christ that you've been baptized into. So you'll actually see in the New Testament, as some people come to be baptized, they end up actually wanting to have nothing to do with the church. They end up leaving sound doctrine and falling away from Christ. They end up living in such gross sin that Paul actually instructs the church in Corinth, for example, to remove this guy from the church because he was baptized He seems to be professing that he believes in Jesus, but he's living a more gross life than the pagans. So remove that brother from the church. It's binding you to the church to oversee your faith. To join the church is saying, watch me, care for me, and I will watch you and care for you. I've never been to one of these, but I've seen them online. When... Uh, someone from another country comes to America and they go through the process to become citizens, there's a swearing-in ceremony. You stand there, you put your, I think you put your hand up, I don't know. I don't even know what we do. Do you have to put your hand on the Bible? Can you? I don't know what we do anymore. But you officially swear your allegiance to the United States of America. And that moment forward, you are an official citizen bearing a passport that says, citizen of the United States, and all the rights and responsibilities that come with it. That's what baptism is. It binds us as a citizen, not only spiritually, but publicly and formally. But I want to warn you, it's also dangerous. It's dangerous. Those who are baptized, they're now marked as Christians in Acts 2. And just as Christ received the vilest rejection of men for claiming himself to be God and God's Son and crucified and raised, so we can expect the same. We keep reading through the book of Acts as we will do in the weeks to come. The apostles are imprisoned. James is killed. They're run out of cities. Stephen is stoned. Hebrews tells us their houses were ransacked. Economies are shifted. And Revelation foresees nothing but a great deal of suffering for those who bear the name of Christ. Because the world will hate them, Jesus said. Likewise today, imagine telling your friends, telling your neighbors, telling your co-workers that you got baptized last weekend and then describe it to them. How might that sound? Not just because of the kind of person that you are or were, 
But because that's a very strange thing to our culture. Lastly, baptism is a humbling and joyful. Humbling and joyful. It's a sign of repentance. It's a sign that I recognize that I have sinned against God, that I need Him to make me new and forgive my sin. I need to be forgiven. And the only way I can be forgiven is that man, God's Son, Jesus Christ, crucified, dying for my sins. There's no proud people getting saved by baptism. There's no celebration. You did it. When we get baptized. No. He did it. He saves me. I'm forgiven. It's not something that we do for God so much as it is a humble, thankful submission, obedience to Jesus saving us. And so for that reason, when the baptismal waters are stirred, and we come up out of the water with our funny faces and Weird looks, we're just happy to be saved from our sins. Happy to be saved from death. What a joy to be able to count your own soul and others as saved. That's what baptism is only ultimately about. It signifies the salvation of unseen souls. Why did Luke finish that way? There were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls destined for judgment. The wicked, crooked generation. The very generation that crucified Christ. At least 3,000 of them heard that He was Lord and Christ, that He died for their sins, that God will forgive their sins through Jesus Christ, and they were saved. Listen to me. If the very people who shouted crucify Him, and the very people who said, give us Barabbas, and the very people who spit upon Jesus' face, and beat him, and mocked him, and laughed at him. If they can hear the witness and the exhortation to be saved, so can we. So can I. And so can you. What the vilest thing you have done in your life can be forgiven because God's own Son died on the cross for you and raised from the dead. How does all of that sit with you today? It might be a lot to take in, a lot to consider, a lot to think about. Maybe a lot of new things. Maybe a lot of old things just hitting new ways. Let me encourage you to do just that. Think about it. Pray about it. Let me exhort you to Consider how you will respond to the witness and the exhortation that Jesus has raised from the dead and paid the debt of your sin. How will you respond in your soul? Maybe you're here today and you've never put faith in Jesus Christ. You could do that today. You could do that right now. 
any number of the members of our church or I can talk with you in the foyer later today about what it means to follow Christ and, and help you take a step forward in faith if you feel you're not able to pray that on your own or you have more questions. Dear Christians, especially Millwood Baptist members, stay here in the gospel. Let your thoughts, the things that you post, things that you text to one another, the things that you read, things that we watch, ever have Jesus in mind. Souls in mind. Your soul in mind. The souls of others in mind as we go to open our mouths this week. We do not know the number of hours or days that we have left until our breath will be our last. Surprising as a pastor, I've actually never been in the room when someone passed away. But the testimony is common. A person may not have eaten for days, may not have spoken for days, may not have opened their eyes for days, and by all intents and purposes, that person's life may be over. But people will tell you time and time again, having been in the room, that when that person passes away, there is a very clear sense that they are not with us anymore. There's a soul that Jesus died to save. Today, while today is still called today, before the sun goes down, don't harden your hearts toward Christ. Consider your soul, consider the eternality of your body and your life. You can turn where you are right now and put your faith in Christ, in your heart and in your soul. As we go forward from Easter to what might feel like normal weeks ahead, church, we just keep doing the same thing over and over and over. We just keep giving witness, we keep exhorting, we keep inviting. And we never know. Maybe you're here today by an invitation from someone from our church. We're trying to do that all the time. We're trying to invite people all the time to come hear about Jesus Christ. We're trying to have conversations all the time with family members and neighbors and friends to tell them to give witness and exhortation about Christ. Sometimes we don't know what fruit it's going to bear. If you're here today as a guest of ours, we're really glad that you're here. We've been inviting a lot of people, and if you came as a guest, we're especially glad that you're here today. Don't forget, we are constantly about the business of adding souls to the kingdom. Something I saw in the news this week, Lee Strobel talks about the time that he invited someone to church when he was a new Christian. He said, I was a new Christian, still a newspaper editor in Chicago. I felt the nudge of the Holy Spirit to go invite this guy from the business office to church on Easter Sunday. This is a wonderful example of John Gresham Macon. I mean, what are you doing in your business office? Talking about business? What are you doing with your family? Are you talking about, talking about the Masters golf tournament? What are, you, what, are you, what are you talking about? He says, I felt the, the nudge by the Holy Spirit to go talk to this guy to invite him from the business office to church on Easter Sunday. I said, it's Easter, Strobel says. Would you like to come visit my church? And the guy replied, I don't want to visit your stupid church. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in the resurrection. There's no evidence for it. 
And Lee says, I stood there for a while and said, there is plenty of evidence, and we talked back and forth about it for a moment. Well, he didn't come. He didn't come to Easter service. Strobel says, this bothered me for years because the guy continued in his atheism. And it bothered me about his soul. Well, about four years later, Strobel says, I was a pastor then, this guy comes to me and wants to thank me for my influence on his life, Strobel said. He said, okay, but I don't know who you are. The man said, well, years ago, you came into the business office at the Chicago Tribune, and I was over in the corner behind a big desk working on the tile floor, and I heard everything you said, and it weighed on me. I went home, said to my wife, let's go to church, and we did, and I came to faith, and my wife came to faith, and our teenage son came to faith. Church, just keep witnessing, giving testimony to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Keep exhorting, compelling, persuading others to come to Christ and see how God, by His Spirit, by His providence, and by His kindness, might keep adding souls. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would leave today cut to the heart with your word that Christ has risen, that we would heed the call to salvation, that our hearts would be stirred to faith and repentance from our old life and turn to following and trusting you. And all the ways that we need to repent, Father, help us repent. And the ways that we are weak and weary and need to be encouraged, help us be encouraged. We love you, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.